You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, and I'm glad to be with you today for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. This week, we begin with a segment from the Catholic Conference Hour, a program that explores public policy that is important to Catholics. Our host, Bob Gilligan, spent time exploring moral guidance as it relates to the COVID-19 vaccines. Let's listen in. Our first guest is Greg Scheppenbach, as I indicated. He is with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and he's always busy, but he's been busier than normal with uh, doing a lot of work on the implications of the vaccines that have been recently uh, produced and announced. Greg, are you with us? I am with you. Hey, good, good morning. Good morning. We, we, <laughs> we've talked so uh, rarely these days. It seems like uh, you are the uh, a popular guy these days with uh, a lot of us here <laughs> trying to figure out what to tell people about the uh, Moderna and uh, the Pfizer vaccines. Greg, um, I, 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 let's just kind of start. I, there's so much coming out about this topic. Um the vaccines are out there. There's two that have been approved. Uh, we saw late Friday, early Saturday, Moderna's vaccine get approved, and Pfizer's was earlier in the week. And, and I know that many people are asking questions because there's a lot of information out there about how these vaccines were produced um, or they were tested. And the concern amongst many is they were used, uh, some of those vaccines had uh, aborted cell lines from years ago. And so some people are saying not to take it. Some people are asking concerns. What, what, what is the message as of right now on the moral implications of these vaccines? Well, I, it's, you know, this is such a complicated uh, topic, Bob, and it's important for people to have the facts. And, and, and starting with, I think, you know, sort of talking about what is not in these vaccines. There are no fetal cells. There's no fetal tissue in these vaccines. Uh, what we're talking about here is the use of what's called a cell line or culture to produce or test vaccines. And that cell line or culture was produced. Uh, there's several of them that were produced decades ago from tissue of abortion. So they were immorally produced. Uh, it is immoral to use tissue from uh, an, uh, an induced abortion and, and harvest that and use it in, in, in medical research because it doesn't show proper respect for the, the body of, the, of this human being. And it, and it also can be seen as scandal in terms of, uh, you know, a promotion of or acquiescence to or legitimate, legitimizing abortion. So these cell lines do have uh, that are used in some of the vaccines have a an immoral connection to abortion and and those who produced it you know are most responsible for that so but it's in in i'd say over the last uh, 20 years or so i mean going back to about maybe not quite about 15 years ago 2005 is when the vatican first addressed uh, the holy see addressed this connection between uh, these uh, uh, abortion-derived cell lines and vaccines and said that, you know, yes, there's 
from the perspective of the researcher, from the perspective of the scientists and those who are producing these vaccines and are using these cell lines, their, their culpability, their cooperation with immorality is, is it's there. It's, and it is a, a real cooperation. But the, you know, the Holy See also spoke to the end user, the average mm-hmm. patient um, who uses a vaccine and said that their, their degree of cooperation with that original abortion and, it's, and, it's, and it's the cells you being used to create a cell line is so remote that under certain circumstances, and, and, and a couple of those are, if there is a serious health risk by not being vaccinated and there is no ethical alternative, then in those circum- under those circumstances, a, a patient, an individual, can uh, use that vaccine that has this connection to uh, an aborted fetal cell line. So, um, again, that, this is it's important to understand these nuances and connections. So ultimately, in the case of uh, a number of vaccines that have been produced in the past, like rubella and chickenpox and others that, you know, are produced on an ongoing basis, in these aborted fetal cell lines, the, the church has said, under certain circumstances, as I just laid out, they can be morally used. But the other thing that the Vatican said very clearly um, in that statement was that those of us who use those vaccines under those circumstances um, have a duty to protest the use of these cell lines and to push the pharmaceutical industry away from using them um, and to use uh, ethical alternatives where they exist. There are a number of vaccines long-standing vaccines that are produced unethically in these aborted fetal cell lines, and there are some uh, alternates that are not produced in these aborted fetal cell lines. So where there are ethical alternatives, we have some obligation to use, we do have an obligation to use those ethical versions to, to push our, our, our physicians and hospitals and other places that buy these vaccines to buy the ones and use the ones and distribute the ones that aren't uh, don't have this unethical connection to abortion, where those alternatives exist. So there's a number of duties, a number of considerations. But for the end user, uh, and this applies in the COVID, in, in, with the COVID vaccines as well. You know, even if there is some connection to these aborted fetal cell lines, either you know through testing or through uh, ultimately if they are produced in these aborted fetal cell lines, which some of them, like AstraZeneca and uh, uh, Janssen and some others that are not yet approved would actually be producing them in these aborted fetal cell lines that even in those circumstances, if there's no alternative um, because of the serious health risks involved, that those vaccines can be morally uh, utilized. One of the things that um, I hope comes out of this is further understanding that some vaccines that we have grown up taking um have, as their origins, as you indicated, uh, been produced by using illicit means, um, aborted relationship to abortion. Um, you know, honestly, you know, it wasn't, I think I, I didn't know even that rubella had this same, uh, moral challenge until, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't think many people out there know that. And so perhaps with this so highly, uh, there's so much focused on the coronavirus vaccine that maybe one of the good things that will come out of this is a further understanding and awareness of how some vaccines are produced. And that will hopefully urge more of us who now know about it to do something about it and how these vaccines are produced. I hope that's one of the outcomes of this. I couldn't agree more with you, Bob. I agree. I think that uh, this this um, whole 
the coronavirus, one of the silver linings of the coronavirus and the, and the focus on the vaccines is precisely that, that I think more people will be aware of the fact that these abortion-derived cell lines have been utilized for decades for the production of vaccines. And uh, again, in some cases, there's there are some uh, alternatives, ethical alternatives in some cases, like right now, rubella, chickenpox in the United States. There's There are no ethical alternatives. Right. Um, but there are some that, for example, rubella, um, there is a ethical rubella vaccine in Japan. Uh, it's not currently allowed for importation, at least on a, on a mass uh, importation basis. But w- this is one of the things that we at the USCCB have been advocating for with the FDA over the last year, year and a half, is urging them to find a way to make available ethical vaccines that exist but aren't available currently in our country. Um, and, and so uh, this is a part of what the Vatican, the Holy See, has called us to do, uh, is to raise awareness about this connection, to take steps, to, to advocate uh, for, uh, for the pharmaceutical industry, our government officials, to um, uh, move away from use of these cell lines and find ethical cell lines that they can use in their place. And so that's what we've been doing. And we've been doing that with the COVID, with COVID vaccines as well. We've been um, advocating um, with this, uh, the Trump administration and their Operation Warp Speed to make sure that there are vaccines produced for COVID that have no connection to abortion. And, and there are some in the pipeline. There's hmm. a couple of hundred uh, vaccines uh, uh, proposals out there being produced in various stages of development. Uh, but there are there are some, you know, in in clinical trials that at least what we know now um, have no connection whatsoever to um, these aborted fetal cell lines. So um, our hope is that they, they will be um, ultimately get across the finish line and provide additional um, alternatives. Now, the Pfizer and, and Moderna, as we've talked about, um, were not uh, developed and they're not being produced using abortion-derived cell lines, but at some point in the process of of their Mm -hmm. uh, development, uh, a test was done to see if the vaccine would work as it's supposed to, and that test was done in uh, an Mm abortifetal cell line. Mm -hmm. So it still has some connection, but at least it's not relying upon the abortion fetal, aborted fetal cell lines for ongoing production of the vaccine, which is kind of a, a whole nother step of connection and reliance upon uh, the immoral cell line. So I guess in short, the, 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 the message is for those who produce these vaccines, they are morally culpable in terms of if they were produced through illicit means. But for the end user... Um, not so much so, because in this case, the connection to the uh, immoral act of abortion is so remote, and then the health risks and uh, th- that there's no other ethical alternatives. I think the message from from right now is that yes, it's morally permissible to take those, with the duty and obligation that people should make it known that we need <laughs> better ethical alternatives in the future. That's exactly right, and. You know, we will do everything we can from the USCCB pro-life office to help facilitate people to take those actions. We're in the uh, just about ready to finalize uh, another short <laughs> question and answer kind of document um, to supplement the the long statement that we put out uh, a week ago, 
um, in, in, so to give people um, basic information to answer the basic questions, but also give them some ideas of ways that they can protest uh, the use of these abortion-derived cell lines. And in moving forward, we're going to do what we can to help people to make their voices known, to continue to put pressure on pharmaceutical companies to move away from uh, these immoral cell lines. And to thank them when they do. I mean, we've done two campaigns them. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. buy them. We've done two campaigns now, uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, a year or two ago when they produced Shingrix, a shingles vaccine, ethically. It was the first one that was produced ethically. And then more recently, Sanofi Pasteur moved away from using the abortion-derived cell lines in the production of their polio vaccine. And so we did uh, uh, put, uh, help mm-hmm. facilitate people to communicate their gratitude to these companies for moving away for, from uh, these, these immoral cell lines. So we need to do all of these kinds of actions to push them away from use of, of immoral cell lines. The other thing I'll say, Greg, is I think your office has done a great job of trying to keep us informed here on the state level uh, all throughout the country about this is a very tough topic. Um, it's very confusing for those of us who are kind of science challenged um, and figuring out uh, it, it takes a while to understand this, but I think we got it now. Um, the Catholic Conference of Illinois on Friday, the bishops put out a very brief statement and basically it's referring uh, those interested to go to the, the, the document that USCCB put out on Monday the 14th. I think you had indicated that um, your office is working on a concise question and answer uh, that that hopes that that you hope to come out with soon. Um, I read this morning that the Vatican, the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, has is, is come out with some inter- more materials. So I guess, you know, from our perspective, we'd urge people to look at those materials that are produced by the Bishops' Conference and the Vatican. And a lot of other people have a lot of other opinions out there, and they are that, they're opinions. But if you want to go to the source, I think the sources are what I had just indicated. Exactly, exactly, and we're gonna we've we've got a place on our website um, uh, at uh, usccb.org forward slash pro life um, under biomedical research, where we've we've got uh, a variety of different um, vac- uh, vaccine related uh, resources from the statements we've put out, the statements the Vatican has put out. This is, as you mentioned, they just put out uh, another statement. I haven't actually I haven't yeah. actually seen the statement, it comes but out I read at 5 an article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read an article about it, and it, it seems as though they're just reaffirming what they have said in the past. So they've spoken three times in the past, starting in 2005, um, and then and it, with a, a statement on the, the moral considerations on, on vaccines and their connection to these abortion-derived cell lines. Uh, in 2008, with uh, Dignitas Personae, uh, where they addressed a number of biomedical research issues, including uh, vaccines and their connection to abortion-derived cell lines. And then in 2017, they issued, the Pontifical Academy for Life issued a statement related specific to a concern about uh, vaccines in Italy. And, and it looks as though what they've put out today, all of these um, say the same thing, that in mm-hmm. no way yeah. does use of these vaccines indicate any acquiescence whatsoever to abortion or to these cell lines that were produced immorally from the cells of abortions. Uh, but it's just as, as moral teaching in the church does, it weighs the various uh, goods and bads together to determine in this particular cir- circumstance, is it, is it morally permissible? And they use 
the, the analysis of cooperation, moral cooperation, to come to the conclusion that, again, for the end user, the person receiving the vaccine, our connection to that original immoral act of harvesting aborted fetal cells and creating a cell line decades ago, our connection to that as a, a recipient of a vaccine is so remote that it is morally permissible to do so, again, with the caveat there's no uh, ethical alternative, and the, the health risks are so serious as to warrant it. And then thirdly, to that, that we're required to um, take actions to protest the use of these immoral cell lines and, and urge the pharmaceutical industry to move away from them and, and, and utilize um, uh, ethical or produce ethical cell lines. And it, the, other, the other good here of them doing this, of the pharmaceutical industry doing this or the government pushing for this is, is, is a good public health reason. And that is you, you, ha- you have some people who rightly so will decide, I am not going to utilize a vaccine because of this connection, even if the church says it's permissible. And so you've got a, you've got a number of, uh, you know, potentially thousands or tens of thousands of people who in conscience um, and the Vatican says in this latest statement that one can make that dis- that conscientious decision, you know, will not get the vaccine. So mm-hmm. there, you know, why would you, as a as a government or pharmaceutical industry, you know, utilize something that's going to limit the number of people who use the vaccine that you produce? Right. So it's, it's incumbent upon them and 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 the and and public health to eliminate any possible reasons that people would feel hesitant to utilize a vaccine. Now, in the Vatican statement today, they, they do say that those who, you know, choose not to get vaccinated on issue, for reasons of conscience do have a separate obligation then to take other steps to, to protect the most vulnerable who cannot get vaccinated or otherwise at high risk for getting the, uh, the coronavirus. So good. there are obligations, obligations there, too. Greg, thanks so much. Uh, very good information. Go to that website. Go to our website, uh, CatholicConferenceOfIllinois.org or ILCatholic.org or the USCCB Pro-Life for that further information. Thanks so much for taking some time. Very good explanation, Greg. And uh, please have a Merry Christmas uh, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks, Bob. Merry Take Christmas care. to you and yep. your family, too. Take care. Later in that same program, host Bob Gilligan spent time talking about the upcoming Midwest tour of the March for Life Chicago. Here's a highlight. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois. And uh, with us today, like I said, we're going to change directions here a little bit. We're going to talk to Kevin Grillo. He is the executive director of We Dignify, and he is quarterbacking or heading up uh, the March for Life Chicago this year coming up. Gosh, it's going to be soon. I can't believe it. Kevin, you with us? Yes, it's great to be here, Bob. Hey, How th- you doing? Uh, great, great. Um, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, tell us a little about what you got going on here. Uh, <laughs> you got a lot going on. So you're you're branching it. The March for Life is growing. It's growing all over the Midwest. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. Yeah, a little good. interesting time, as everyone is saying. But I, I'm so stoked for this year. But I, I mean. <laughs> Because, like, nine years ago, this event, the March by Chicago, was about 150 people. I know. And it was on a sidewalk. Yep. And then in, in a matter of eight years, we grew last year, 9,000 people pouring down Michigan Avenue. In the snow and rain. Yeah. That's <laughs> always there. lovely weather for yeah, us. Right. It's always good <laughs> weather, right. You get a little extra sacrifice in uh, <laughs> for it. Uh, but I, so 
When we set out to plan this year, of course, I mean, we had a convention that we were hoping 500 people would come last year and 2,000 people poured in and it was overflowing. So the energy and the attraction is there, and people are coming from across the Midwest. And so it, it grew from the Chicago event to all over the Midwest. So we looked at this year and we were like, well, we, how are we going to do that? We can't pour 2,000 people into a convention center right now. Yeah. And some unique challenges. The thing is, we wanted to, we are committed to continuing to help foster this grow. So we launched in the beginning of the fall the Moving the Movement Tour. So instead of the entire Midwest coming to us this year, we're going to the Midwest. And I think my wife thinks I'm a little bit crazy for this, but we, we are so committed to getting the message out there and the pro-life message and doing so. And having public events, we're doing different drive-in rallies and then car caravans through major downtown locations. So every weekend in January, we have something going on. In fact, our first one is less than two weeks away. We start January 2nd in Madison. So when I was a kid, I remember uh, friends of mine had T-shirts of concerts they went to with, like, like rock bands. And they would say, you know, I'd say, like, uh, January 3rd, Los Angeles, or like Fleetwood Mac. And they would show, the, like, the, pa- the, the the location. And they would just have the dates and, and the city they played in. I'm looking at your list of sites. Maybe you guys should do that, like your concert tour. So January 2nd, you're in Madison. Then you go to Des Moines on the 9th of January. Then the 10th, it's Omaha. The 16th is Fort Wayne. You go to Mundelein, Illinois on the 17th. Got Indianapolis on the 22nd and Chicago on the 23rd. You should have like a little, you know, Kevin Grillo concert tour thing, or March for Life concert <laughs> tour. So, so tell us, like, if people want to get involved with this, I mean, I, I think we should probably. So, what, what is it? What are you going to do? Because I don't know if people understand exactly sure, how what does it, it work. What, yeah, what is it? Everyone's kind of wondering. We've been doing this. Yeah, I'm wondering too. <laughs> I've heard it. <laughs> so we have with this, we wanted to give the capability of involvement all over, but also in different capacities. So the first thing you do is. You, you buy some diapers. We're doing a diaper drive for 130,000 diapers, which is connected to, in the Midwest annually, there are 130,000 mm. abortions. So we're giving one diaper, and then each stop you can pick. You can, you can do it online ahead of time, and then we'll do a mass order of diapers. And you can pick which stop or local pregnancy resource center you want them to go towards, uh, so whatever stop you would like, or you can bring them the day of. So if you've ever done a Walmart grocery pickup or you go on, you know, you've gotten, gotten groceries delivered to your trunk, this is kind of the inverse of that. You have your diapers in the trunk. We'll go ahead and collect them for you when you come to the stop. Then you're still going to get great, awesome, exciting pro-life speakers at the rally at a parking lot. But so you can do a caravan ahead of time. Several groups are meeting up with their, their church in a parking lot and then driving over. And if you want to do that, we can actually ship you uh, signs to yeah. put up in your windows and make it very visible because we this is another way many people have bring awesome signs to march in this way that you can show them the whole drive all the way there you hear the speakers you have the rally and then we hit the road and we go through public square this way just in our vehicles and so we'll have this massive drive in these different stops throughout very visible locations in each city. And in Chicagoland, there's looks like there's two. There's one on January 17th. That's going to be up in Mundelein. I think that's at Carmel High School. And then the 23rd is going to be in Chicago. I think Soldier Field, is that the location? What? How are you guys uh, – What? What? if people want to go, what should they do? Sure. The first thing is go to marchforchicago.org and register for the stop you want to go to. There you can just pick out multiple stops or the same one. That way you're – 
you're getting the most up-to-date information. And you're right, the, the, there is a January 17th for the suburbs option up in Mundelein, and some great speakers, including Linda Curry mm. uh, and, and many more. You can check out the website. We'll have the whole list there. Oh, good. Okay. And it will be stacked. Uh, we're dropping that one month out. So that's coming up. So if and you're in your car, there's a speaker. I take it it's what, on the radio? Or this person has a really loud voice? Or how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> Not the really loud voice. This might be a little different experience because even if it is raining or snowing, yeah, yeah you will be in your car. You'll have a roof over your head. Ah. You'll be transmitting uh, the, through different – so you'll tune in on your radio. Ah, so you can stay dry and warm in a way too. Oh, yeah. This yeah. Is for the Southeast, Bob, like you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I need my creature comforts. Well, I think the thing is that Metro Chicago has developed on a weekend. So we have lots of families that come. Yes. And we have lots of people that can't take off of work for right. multiple days, but they want to come. So you can fill up your household in your car and yep. come on over, and then you can just tune in. That and so there'll be signs and things like that you'll get, and you'll have some speakers. And what is the program? Like, an, is it an hour, or is it even that long? Or how, how Not long? even that long. Good. We recommend yeah. – <laughs> we <Short>. understand. <laughs> when right. you're standing outside or you're in your car. Yeah. You know, it's, the program is going to be between 30 and 40 minutes before That's you hit perfect. the road. That's perfect. And then so it's a visible witness about the concern for human life. That, that It's the same kind of thing that's done downtown, but just in a different format. I, I think, you know, the one thing that this crazy pandemic is we, we have to be versatile. We have to we have to be able to shift and uh, do things differently. And, you know, this is just a different form of witness to the but it's the same cause um, and it'll be the same that that march that you've. Uh, had going underway. I mean, I think it's been very successful, and it's a great event. It's a great day's event. But this can just be equally as 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 rewarding, just in a different way. Well, I, I think one of the beautiful things is that we continue. March has grown under the idea that people come, they get a joy and hope from seeing so many other people. Right. And you're still going to be able to see people in their cars <laughs> next yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. Those cars will be parked six feet apart. Sure. But I... they, you're still going to have that experience, which. My trash Chicago is known for the the energy, the excitement, yep. young people. We're going yep. to high schools when high schools can't come to us. Right. And, still, I, and yeah. I understand at Carmel there's a there's a there's a, if the weather is permissible, there is a way to get outside a little bit if 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 that's possible. Apparently there's a big open space there or something. Yeah, there's some spacing available at Carmel. Okay. That location. Chicago, we actually so Chicago's been giving us a, a tough challenge as you might imagine. No. Uh we are as you were mentioning, commitment to principle for sure, and then finding ways to achieve that mission. Mm-hmm. And we've always had a public event, and it's always been, I mean, we've moved locations from a Thompson Center, Federal yeah. Plaza, right. Daly Plaza. All of those plazas have sure. rejected our attempts for permits, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, even with extensive guidelines recommended and, and some procedures developed in place. So, in fact, the last one was just rejected on, on Friday. So we'll, we'll be announcing uh, after Christmas, uh, the week after okay. Christmas, we'll be announcing exactly what's happening in Chicago. But you got to imagine, I mean, we've been able to build this up, and we know Cook County and Chicago, we couldn't just walk away from that. Right. This tour you. is all over the place. We understand the Midwest, but Chicago is the heart of where we got started, but it's also the, the heart of the need in the Midwest. It, it is. is yep. the worst place for an unborn child to be in the Midwest, yeah, worst the, county, worst the numbers city. are staggering. So, Kevin, um, one last time, if people are interested, how do they find out more about it? 
marchrodchicago.org okay. and sign up. Great. Kevin, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. He's the director of We Dignify, and they are now the, uh, the organization that is leading quarterbacking with a lot of audibles to keep using the football metaphor, uh, the March for Life Chicago, not only Chicago, but Midwest this year. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Here's a reminder that you can listen to all our programs live or at your convenience by going to radiotv.artchicago.org. That's radiotv.artchicago.org. And our radio programs are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. So subscribe today. Our next segment today comes from the Voice of Charity. This week, co-hosts Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy spoke with a local priest about the Holy Land. Let's take a listen. today to do something a little bit different, um, and that is to, we've dedicated this show to learn more about the sites where the nativity actually happened. Our guest today is a dedicated priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago who is also a well-known Holy Land scholar. Reverend Edward Harnett has taken hundreds of pilgrims on over a dozen trips to the Holy Land over the past 40 years, included, of course, in these tours are the sites they see are Bethlehem and the Church of the Nativity, which is built over the site where Jesus was born. It has been revered and venerated as such since the earliest days of Christianity. Father Hartnett is currently Pastor Emeritus at Saints Joseph and Francis Xavier in Wilmette, where he continues to serve in a wide variety of ways. And we're really excited to talk with him today and have him take us on this journey. Uh, Welcome, Father Hartnett. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Father, when did you start taking these trips to the Holy Land, and and kind of what led you to do this, and how did it become part of your ministry? <laughs> it goes back, and it was kind of accidental. I um, <clears throat> in about in 1982, um, a young priest who I supervised his internship called me up after he was ordained and said, "The diocese is having a tour to the Holy Land. Why don't we go?" <laughs> so I said, okay, let's go. I had always had an interest. I um, I guess I uh, enjoyed archaeology in general, and then I got into biblical archaeology, and um, uh, there was a publication which is still being published, uh, the Biblical Archaeological Review, and I, I had been reading it for years, so I was ready to go. And so we went, and uh, it was a great trip. But then... I didn't go after that um, until 1990. I um, decided I ought to take a, a sabbatical. Your priest is entitled to sabbaticals periodically, and I had never taken one. So I uh, decided to do that, and the place I wanted to go was the Holy Land. And uh, so I did, and I lived there for three months in Jerusalem, and, you know, we studied Scripture and travel and so on. And then... Um, when I came back, the parishioners started saying to me, well, why don't you take us? Yeah. So That's what Bridget and I are saying, yeah, too. Like, can, take, you, can you take us? <laughs> well, uh, you know, Israel was, a lot of things were going on, like the Intifada, so it wasn't sure. very stable. So I had some apprehension. But anyway, the people insisted. I remember I had postponed it a couple of times, and one gentleman, Dick Kelly, 
I came up to me and said, now, Father, there's always going to be something. We just have to go. So, okay, I said, then you're on the committee. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we we planned it, and we went, and it was very good. It was harder for me because it was the first time I had brought a group, but um, I learned, and uh, we had a very good trip. And one led to another, and one led to another, and... And every few years, I would ask if people want to go, or people would ask me, are you going to go again? And I'd say, oh, sure, let's do it. And so I ended up going about a dozen times. So it's, uh, it's uh, every time I go, you know, I'm motivated by two things. One, there's no better way to teach people about Jesus than to stand where Jesus stood when he said things. And especially if you can help people give them a little context. And the second reason is, I myself, as often as I've been there, it's special to me. Mm. And so um, it's just accidentally started. I didn't set out, you know, to do this. Right. And it happened to me, if you will, and uh, it's been a blessing in my life, too. Isn't that amazing how some of the best best things in life are, are accident, happy accidents? Can you... <laughs> Can you walk us through what a typical tour might be, what sites people actually see, and then um, like how how close you can get or what the environment's actually like for people at some of these um, junctures? Well, to ask, answer the last one first, what's the environment like? It's excellent. It's very good. But to go back to the... Um, um, we usually fly into Tel Aviv, although on occasion... After the tour, which is usually two weeks, I offer, I've generally offered an additional tour to Jordan and down to Petra and some of the places, uh, Mount Nebo and so on. And um, so, but generally speaking, we fly into Tel Aviv. And from Tel Aviv, we drive up to, uh, in Galilee, to, um, to the Sea of Galilee. And we stay in a hotel on the shore, the Sea of Galilee. And you have to remember, uh, Israel is about a third the size of Illinois. So uh. it's it's not big. So we station ourselves the first week in Galilee at, uh, uh, at the Sea of Galilee. And the second week, <clears throat> we establish ourselves in Jerusalem, right next to the old wall city. And so... With our bus, we have our coach for the whole time. You, you can cover an awful lot, uh, given the size uh, of Israel and the fact that we have two bases we work from. And so we cover mostly. But anyway, we, you asked where we... We start up in uh, Galilee, and there um, you, you we go to Nazareth. Uh, we go to, well, Capernaum, where... Uh, Jesus did most of his ministry. He had made it as a base. And what's beautiful there, the Franciscans have done a great deal of archaeology. They found St. Peter's home. and oh, wow. And they built a church over it. So when you say Mass there, they have a glass floor. And you're looking down on St. Peter's house as you say Mass. And as you stand at the altar and the people in their pews, you look to one side and you see the Sea of Galilee, and you look to the other side, and you see the synagogue where uh, Jesus uh, preached in um, in Capernaum. And it's the, the synagogue uh, ruins you're looking at today 
are not the ones Jesus was in, but it's built directly over the one Jesus was in. In fact, you can see some of the black foundation stones are the stones from the one Jesus was in. So it's quite a perspective. You're standing there at the altar. Look to the left, you see the Sea of Galilee. Look to the right, you Mm -hmm. see the synagogue where Jesus taught. Look down below your feet, and you see the house of St. Peter. And you can just picture that scene when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And then he walked down the road. It's the same road, I'm sure. They don't move the houses. He's <laughs> out right to the house of St. Peter. And remember, Jesus cured the mother in- mother-in-law of Peter. And um, it, it, that's powerful as far as I'm concerned. What are you feeling in that setting? And and. And what do you try to convey? It puts a lot of pressure on your homily to be in <laughs> to be yeah. in that setting. What what are you trying to convey to to pilgrims in this in this you know historic and theological spiritual setting? You know, in fact, it's very easy to preach mm. because the the place preaches for you and with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time. Uh, a lady said to me, we were in, we had our coach, I told between places, and she said, you know, why don't we say the rosary while we're traveling between places? And I thought for a minute, and I said, no, I don't think so. The place has power. The, the, you don't have to add to it, and you don't want to get in the way of it. The, the, the whole experience there is moving, and you're going through these places, and, and, and your coach And, of course, people have casual conversations. We always make sure there's extra seats so people can move around, you know, relax. But um, everybody's in awe of what they're seeing. So you don't need to add anything. So as far as preaching is concerned, it's never easier. And I don't find myself doing a lot of preparation because you get there at the site and um, somehow it, it takes over. You just talk about what you're experiencing. And um, so it's actually, it's very easy to preach there. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, how about your your archaeological interest and training? Um, you know, you're really able to speak to the the spirit in, in the land and the buildings and the stones. Uh, how does that help you? Well, what I like to tell people sometimes is when we talk about traditions, there's big T and there's small T. <laughs> the big T, I really, this is really solid. Small T, well, okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, uh, I usually, I've read about and studied this, and I, I, I got to know a priest very well who's a biblical scholar there. He died a few years ago, Jerome Murphy O'Connor, and I got to know him pretty well. In fact, he stayed with me for a while here. But I learned an awful lot from him. Plus, I, I, I've been reading about it uh, for years and years, and I've been there. So um, I, I don't. It, it, it comes naturally, and as I say, the the place has its own power, and um, you don't have to add to it. It's it, 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 it's spiritual without being heavy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, so I do distinguish uh, traditions that you know, and then with a nice tradition. But then the things that are really solid, and um, for example, uh, Calvary. There's nothing more solid than that is where Jesus died. And I just, I had a powerful experience. The last time I was there, um, 
I was able to spend half an hour early in the morning at at Cal on Calvary, the top of Calvary, all by myself. Nobody oh, else there wow. for half an hour. You don't need a prayer book. Hmm. You don't need a rosary. You just are there, and and this is where Jesus really died. Hmm. And the the love of God involved. We talking about tough love. Um, you're 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 where it happened, and it's almost hard to believe that the creator of the universe could become incarnate and, and, and go to the extent of Calvary. So, um, I, and that's a very solid tradition. You know, I, I have all the confidence in that, that, like the burial place of Jesus and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, so the reading I've done it certainly reinforces and helps me sort things out and helps me to sort them out for people. Um, but um, I don't know, somehow the place takes over and uh, and I'm with some background knowledge. And we have a guide. The guides are always knowledgeable. And I always make sure we have a Christian guide because the other guides know the terrain, they know the stories, but uh, there's no empathy for it. And uh, what a good Christian guide, and the last one I had the last time was just wonderful. And um, so it's, it's well, it's, if you know some background, it's just easy to share that, to be honest with people about, about everything. And um, the questions are good questions. So, Can you share with us a little bit about the experience of being um, at the Grotto of the Nativity, being there in Bethlehem, and what that's like? And what are the things our listeners need to know? Well... The first church, Christians knew where Jesus was born, and we have early references to it among church fathers, and that it was in Bethlehem, and it was in the cave, and so on. So um, when Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, now remember Constantine gave freedom to Christianity, his mother traveled to the Holy Land to find the sites of Jesus and to build uh, churches over them. Um, a lot of them were preserved, interestingly, by the pagans trying to keep Christians away. They put another uh, temple to a divinity to keep uh, Christians from going there. But then, in fact, in many cases, they marked the spot. Huh. So in the year 339, she went and she built a church over the cave. It was an octagonal church, and it wasn't very big. So then in um, 529, the emperor at that time built a larger church, and that church is there today. It's the oldest church in the Middle East, because in the uh, 600s, the Persian army came through. And this is a very interesting story. They, he came to the church, and they were going to destroy it. They destroyed them all. But on the front, there was a picture of the Magi coming to Bethlehem. And the Magi were dressed as Persians. So the, the Persian general saw the Magi dressed as they were dressed. So that plus, in fact, they had good relations between the Muslims and the uh, Christians in that area. The church was spared, so it's wow. still there. It's When you come near it, how much time do we have? I, yeah. uh, We've got four and a half minutes left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good uh, question, Father. And then we're bringing you back another time. <laughs> the door, there are three. 
there are three archways, and each one is smaller. And the final one is about uh, chest high. You have to bend over. It's called the humility door. And the reason was because they used to go in with wagons and steal everything out of the church and drive out. And then when they made their doors too small for that, they'd come in on their horses. And so they made their uh, too small for that. So you have to, But once you bend down to get in, you're in a large church. It's like almost like a Roman basilica. It's long and somewhat narrow. And at the other end is a, a Greek Orthodox uh, sanctuary. Mm. But then you go around the side and down the steps, and you're in the grotto. You're in the cave. And... Um, at the center, there's a Greek Orthodox altar, and under it, a star on the floor with a hole, and you can reach down, point as you can touch the floor. The tradition is that's where Jesus was born. The Catholics have an altar over on the side. The tradition is that's where Jesus was laid in the manger. Now, I think, as far as I'm concerned, that Jesus was born in the cave I'm not going to split hairs about what spot of the cave. <laughs> Listen, don't be born. ruining any of our big <laughs> T's and small you know, T's. This is the cave where she, see caves were homes were often built over or in front of caves mm. in that time. So this was probably that extra room that when the family and everybody's in the main room, you couldn't give birth to a baby there. So they women, I'm sure, took Mary into the back, and uh, Jesus was born mm. in that area. So it's 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 moving when you're there, yeah. um, and we say mass in um, an adjacent cave. I, it, at this time, because of the crowds, you don't get a chance to say mass in the cave. We say it one adjacent to it, but even a doorway. And saying mass there, I remember one of the last times I did it. Just when I finish, somebody starts singing Silent Night, and it just takes over. It's it, Silent night never meant as much as it does then. And uh, everybody just chimed into silent night. Then everybody just walks out kind of silently because what do you even say? I mean, you've just experienced that. You know, truly, I wish that this show could go on for six more hours. But in the last minute and a half, what is something that you would share with our listeners to kind of take with them as we enter into Christmas in just a few days? I, I think the miracle of the Incarnation. Um, <clears throat> the creator of the universe, you can go on your internet or, or in your you know, in a computer and you can see the galaxies and all that. And, and the creator of all this in, in one time and one place, perhaps more times in places we don't know in the universe, but certainly here, became one with us to lead us to be one with him. And uh, in other words, we can't cross the gap to God, so God crossed the gap to us. And um, just to realize that, that the creator of the universe uh, took human form and was born here. I mean, I don't know what more to say. <laughs> I don't think there is anything more to say. I, I That is beautiful, and, and thank you. Thank you for, for bringing home Christmas to us. Thank you for bringing home um, the, the Incarnation. For more information about Catholic Charities, how they assist people in need, and how you can help, visit catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. 
For our final segment today, we go back to Bob Gilligan and the Catholic Conference Hour. Bob spent some time talking with a young man who was recently named the 2020 winner of the USCCB's Carnal Bernadine New Leadership Award. Here's a highlight. Our next guest is an interesting uh, development here. His name is Lewis Jones. He won the National uh, CCHD Award. Actually, it's called the Cardinal Joseph Bernadine Award uh, for his work um, with the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. And he comes to us from uh, far south of here in Belleville, Illinois. Lewis, are you with us? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got cut off some mail. That's okay. That's okay. I was just going through your life story. I was, in, I was, <laughs> I, I stopped. At, I got to age two. Oh, wow, great. <laughs> so thanks for taking some time and joining us this morning. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the award that you received. Yeah, so um, thank you for having me on the show yeah, today. Yeah, glad and to do it. It's a great blessing for me to have received this award. I truly feel like you know, there's so many people doing work on this issue. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, this is an award, the Cardinal Bernardine New Leadership Award uh, from CCHD and the USCCB. It's to identify people who are work leaders, young leaders between the ages of 18 and 40, who are doing work to address uh, poverty in the United States um, and, and using that as a tool for the new evangelization. So this is kind of the over, overview of the award, I guess. What, what, tell us, why did you get the award? I mean, what, what were the specific <laughs> things that you were engaged in? Yeah, Best looking, I know, but outside of yeah. that. <laughs> so um, uh, I've been involved with the Catholic Campaign for Human Development for the past around two and a half, almost three years at this point. Um, I started out as an intern with them for the Diocese of Belleville and then the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and also did work kind of with the organizations affiliated with them, a lot of young adult programming and outreach. And um, I'm also now at the uh, Archdiocese of St. Louis, the board of directors there for Catholic Charities. Um, and so I guess, uh, to be honest, I feel like, you know, the work that I've been doing is really just work that I've done in collaboration with so many others. The work of CCHD is, again, not a single-person effort, but in yeah. Southern Illinois, I work with a great person, Cheryl Summer, who sure. does amazing work on no, the ground well. all the time. She's Yeah, she's a, she's been a great mentor to me, walking me through that process in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I was working with their policy uh, lobbying office while I was doing my work with CCHD. Again, mm-hmm. amazing person there, Tamara Kinney, who led me through every step of the way. So truly, I don't, you know, honestly, everything I've done, I've been doing in collaboration with others, even at Catholic Charities in other capacities, even with my work with young adults. You know, there's so many young adult ministers who are coordinating that, facilitating that. So I really always use this as an opportunity to raise up the amazing work that many people are doing to excite young adults about fighting poverty as a part of their Catholic faith, to actually do the work on the ground, working with uh, low-income organizations that CCHD does, low-income economic development and community development organizations that are really empowering people and living out the Catholic social doctrine of subsidiarity through empowering people to come up with their own solutions, um, all in conformity with uh, Catholic social teaching. Lewis, you know, you, you're CCHD, you're a young man, uh, you're graduate work, you're doing your master's, I think, in social work, and, and yes. you've been involved with this now for a couple of years. Um, and, and St. Louis is, a, is, a, is there's areas of tough, St. Louis, that's, that can be a tough town. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is, there's some significant levels of, of poverty in East St. Louis and, and St. Louis yeah. area. What, what, yeah. what do you think is the, 
if you can answer this, you'll be a zillionaire. I mean, right. what do you? Th- I know you're gonna- yeah, what do you think is this? Was the thing that that population needs most to help them? And it's not so much being poor in terms of lacking money, but I think there's just so many other things that go around in these areas where it just seems like there's no hope. Yeah, well, and I do some of my research on this topic as well. Um, really, my and everyone has different perspectives. I do not have the answers like you yeah. <laughs> alluded to. Um, but my whole idea is you have to give people opportunity, and I mean tangible opportunity. A lot of people say, hey, well, people could just drive over to this other part of town. People could just drive over, yeah. do this. People could just go get a college degree. People can just do all these things. And when you really looked at the live, lived experience of people who are low-income, people who are in poverty, it's, that's, that's simply not addressing the reality of, of those experiences. I mean, there's tons of research on these questions, but mm-hmm. one of the big things is, you know, as, a, as, Catholic, as Catholics, we have uh, uh, the duty to pursue economic justice. And what that really means is we have to take the Catholic doctrine and look at it as it, as it relates to concrete economic issues. If you go into a community, and especially a place like St. Louis, so let's, say, let's look at St. Louis. St. Louis is highly stratified as it relates to income. You have it very is. wealthy areas yes. of St. Louis and St. Louis County. You have very poor areas. If you look at a map, and if you look at that map, you'll see exactly where those areas are in mm-hmm. North St. Louis County, East St. Louis, which is on the Illinois side, um, and St. Louis City. And those areas are also extremely you know, minority-centric populations, right? These are mostly mm-hmm. uh, African-American populations. And when you look at the opportunities, if you just drive through North St. Louis County and you see these, these buildings falling apart, you see, this, you see the school systems, which are, again, some of the worst school districts in the United States and, and definitely in the state of Missouri – and you're like, these people do not have the same opportunities that someone in West County, St. Louis County does. We have schools that are super nice, have swimming pools, all types of stuff. Yeah, sure. So it's about, it's about giving people concrete opportunities for hope. So what CCHD does to that end is it gives people this resources to create solutions because every single environment has its own particular issues. Mm-hmm. And some issues are really dealing with – I've lived in North St. Louis City after um, – during the time the uprising in Ferguson. Ferguson I was right. I was there present. Mm-hmm. And – you know, one of the things I always remember, I stepped outside of my house one day in, St. in North St. Louis City, and there were gunshots often there at night. I stepped outside, and I just saw these houses falling apart, and I saw people every, every morning getting up and going to work, coming out of a house that was next to a house literally crumbling to the yeah. ground. And yeah. you're like, wow, this is – no human being should live like this. Yeah. Um, and so I think that just Catholics just should have their conscience pricked on that on that topic and think about it deeply and look at our Catholic social doctrine. You know, we have a lot of uh, uh, solutions there. I, I think there are a lot of Catholics who are legitimately concerned and want to help. I, I do. I don't think it's lack of, of desire or want. I think like a lot of things, it's people just don't know how to channel that that desire. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's that's a that I, I hear. I, I think it's just a common thing. You know, people are busy and that kind of thing. And if they're going to do something, they want to be able to do something that they know is going to result in an, in an outcome um, yeah. and and do something that uh, is going to benefit another person. And I think yeah. I, I think that's what I hear you saying. The CCHD does have some of those types of opportunities available to people. And one of the most important things is, you know, we can't go into communities solving the issues of communities right. <laughs> that we don't belong to. You know, to be honest, that's the, some of the issues. Right. Yeah. Some of the issues in these communities are issues that they know best and that they're able to understand best. And you do have groups working to solve issues on all sides, whether it relates to gun violence, whether it's economic opportunity, whether it's the mm-hmm. uh, you know criminal justice issues, all types of things. People are working on this issue. So what Catholics can do is they can learn about the issues. That's actually a good step. Yeah, like, exactly. Just take time to research. And because a lot of times we have different opinions, right? There's not sometimes some of these issues are not one size fits all. There's one solution, there's one answer. There's a lot of ways you can approach issues within Catholic social doctrine. We have a lot of 
brevity as it relates to mm-hmm. direct policy solutions. And so we're going to disagree. And that's what I really invite Catholics to do. Have more conversations in Catholic spaces about these topics. Don't, don't make this space where everyone has to conform to the same view. People are not going to have the same view, nor should they have the same view. We need different perspectives. Some people will say, hey, it's not an issue of opportunity. It's an issue of, of this or of this. And so there's yeah, many structure different things. Of the family that, is a big topic, too. Yes, yeah. of course. Right. And that is, of course, and as Catholic social doctrine, like the foundation of that is the family. Exactly. You know, the strong family. families make for strong communities, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. yeah the, the, you know, for families, this is mm-hmm. the first line of defense for, for a mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, children are the people who suffer the most in families right. that are in poverty. You know, they have had no control over the situation. And often they're the ones who lack, you know, the, then the opportunities for upper mobility later. So it's a cycle. So this is why we have to understand that when we it, we, it, we intervene with, with communities, and I'm also a social worker. So when we, mm-hmm. we work with communities, um, you know, we and with families, we have to be aware that there's so many things that we may have seen uh, that we may not be able to see that have affected this family or this system or this community. And so we have to have the humility to ask them their experience, to understand it from their perspective in order to approach it in a way that's that's going to serve them best. You're very articulate. Um, 27 years old, uh, work on your master's. You're a New Yorker, though, by by birth, right? I was born in New York. And also, quick so correct, correction, um, that uh, article that says I'm 27 is incorrect. I'm actually 26. <laughs> but that hey. article did say that. But, um, yeah, Pretty soon you'll be York. arguing more or less than 26. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I was born in, in New York. Um, I was born in Good Manhattan. Um, and from there, that's when I got my kind of, I guess you could say, start in this in terms of my family. You know, my mom and my godmother and my, my father all really worked to create a space for people with HIV AIDS who are homeless. My dad uh, has AIDS. And uh, my godfather, who passed away, uh, Willie Reyes, had AIDS as well. Um, and so this, they created a space. You know, it was a live-in mm-hmm. space. It was a very well-known community called Stand Up Harlem. And from there, I kind of got my start, if you will, again, in, in just being mm-hmm. aware of how people mm-hmm. on the margins sure. really are impacted disproportionately by many issues. Great. Great. God bless you. That's great. Um, we haven't met, but I, I do look forward to meeting you someday. And uh, oh, look, best yeah. of best of luck in your uh, work. Uh, boy, you got your work cut out. I mean, um, <laughs> but but I'm, uh, it's nice to see a young man um, get that kind of award and um, and and hopefully uh, you can make uh, some 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 changes. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Lewis. Uh, don't go away, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Uh, thanks, Lewis, for joining us here to talk a little bit about his award and his work in Belleville and uh, East St. Louis, St. Louis area. Uh, don't go away. We're going to right back uh, the conclusion of our show. We're going we're gonna to save the best for last. Glenn Van Cura, who is the uh, director of Catholic Charities in the Diocese of Joliet, is leaving us. He's going to talk a little bit about some of his experiences over the last couple of years and where he's going. Don't go away. We'll be right back. close today's program with an important reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., 
and Pole Vision for televising our Polish language mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.